You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Being an actor can certainly be a challenge. A lot of hills to climb along the way. But today's guest certainly put my own challenges in perspective. Christoph Zajac Denek is a little person who hasn't let his size stand in the way of becoming an actor, a drummer, or even a surfer. But that's not to say it hasn't been a struggle. From day one, Christoph was told he wouldn't make it. The day after I was born, the doctor came in and talked to my mom and said, your son will never run, your son will never jump, he will never drive a car, he will never ride a bicycle, and it destroyed my mom. Welcome to Why I'll Never Make It, featuring conversations with fellow creatives about the realities of a career in the performing arts. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, and your support for the ongoing work of this podcast would be greatly appreciated. If you can, please go to donate.winmepodcast.com. There you'll also find special access to members-only episodes. And 20% of all proceeds this December go to Only Make Believe. Again, go to donate.winmepodcast.com. Every year, podcasters get together and talk about the business and how to improve and network with others at a conference called Podcast Movement. Now, being 2020, the year of COVID, of course, the conference had to go virtual. And in one of the breakout sessions, you were able to, to pick people at random to start up a conversation with. And one of those conversations happened to be with today's guest, Christoph Zajac Denick. That chance encounter led to longer conversations about his own podcast, as well as his 40 years of living with dwarfism. Now, if I'm being honest, I've never actually really met a little person, maybe in passing, but never actually sat down and had a conversation with one. So besides finding his story to be fascinating and such a departure from my own story or any of the other conversations I've had on this podcast— I also had a lot of questions about what exactly it was and, and what's the day-to-day life of someone living with this condition. Fortunately, Christoph was ready, willing, and able. Dude, ask any and everything. There's no stupid questions. I'm an open book. Like, let's talk about, let's talk about all of it. Now, normally the interviews that I do for these episodes take about an hour or so. 
But Kristoff and I were on Zoom for more than two hours, and even then, we still could have kept talking. There were so many areas of his life and experience that were not only interesting, but they were inspiring. So this is actually part one of that conversation. I I just couldn't fit it all into one episode. Now, for most episodes, I usually spend a few minutes asking about a guest's upbringing or family background. For Christoph, it needed a bit more of a deeper dive into what it was like for him growing up and coming to realize how different he was from others around him. So a good chunk of part one takes a look at these formative years of his life. But we also get into him discovering music and eventually his work on camera. In part two, we'll get to the acting experience that really had a profound impact on his life. And we also talk about the M word. As I mentioned, Christoph is a podcaster as well, where he talks about dwarfism and how it has affected different people's lives. On my show, I say that dwarfism is a mixed bag because nobody ends up with the same conditions and remedies and, you know, pain or no pain as anybody else. It's, it's, I I know I have friends who have had zero operations and they function perfectly fine. And then I know other people who have had six back surgeries by the time they were age 11. You know, it is what it is. And you really have to be ready to navigate a unique scenario. So as we begin, I want you and me to have a basic understanding of this condition. And what better place to go online than to the Understanding Dwarfism website. It was actually started by two parents who found out that their daughter had a form of dwarfism and didn't know anything about it. So they began this website as a foundation for broader education and awareness of dwarfism. One of the most interesting facts I learned is that 80% of little people are born to average-sized parents. And there are more than 200 different types of dwarfism, with an estimated 30,000 people in the U.S. and more than 650,000 in the world. Now, quite frankly, I looked on several different websites for the general population of little people in the U.S., and numbers varied widely. Maybe that's because of the multitude of dwarfism types, so it's hard to nail down an exact figure. But the general definition of dwarfism is for individuals who are 4 foot 10 inches or shorter. And while the Americans with Disabilities Act protects the rights of people with dwarfism, many members within the short stature community, as they call it, don't feel they have a disability. And based upon my conversation with Christoph, I would say he probably falls in that category as well. He certainly recognizes the differences, but honestly, it has not disabled him from accomplishing so many things in his life. Now, with that being said, from birth, his parents, and eventually Kristoff, knew that this was going to be a challenge. I'm 41, and when I was born, there weren't ultrasounds, and there wasn't ways to tell what complications might be Uh, like a baby would have a newborn, at least with dwarfism anyway. And so my mom is extremely strong, but to hear on day one of my life that I'm not going to be able to participate in these normal activities, she was devastated. And I actually have her, I had her, she was my first guest on my show and we talked about what that was like and what, um, she felt when when this doctor came in. So they knew right away. They didn't know. I 
I was uh, sneaky even as a two-day-old to keep um, <laughs> my cards close to my chest. Um, they didn't know what I, what type of dwarfism I was until maybe a year in or so. Um, and when I was two is when I first started to see the dwarfism specialist doctor in Baltimore. My parents are very headstrong and driven individuals. And so they sought out medical care for me at, at the highest level. And, and we found a specialist. And so I believe it was when I was two is when I started to go see Dr. Kopitz in Maryland. And was that just to assess your physical either limitations or what was going to happen and kind of diagnose the future? Or were there complications at that time? Um, there weren't really complications per se, but they there was enough hearsay in the the hospital in Michigan and other doctor's offices in Michigan where I'm from that outlined that there were most likely going to be some complications as be, and because it was so difficult for them to diagnose me I have a very rare form of dwarfism um, it's called cartilage hair hypoplasia and for them to figure out what that actually was and how to treat me um, this this specialist was, you know, an outlier and, and definitely shining through that we wanted to at least um, get in touch with him and see what his opinions were. So um, interesting fact, my dad in the early 80s took photos of me naked and took them to the drugstore to get them developed and said, hey, this isn't for lewd or obscene purposes. My son has a medical condition and we are trying to see if a doctor a couple states away would be able to help him. So please do not flag this. Please do not think that this, that this is anything other than a father trying to help out his son. And, um, you know, they got the pictures and they sent them to the doctor and the, and the doctor received them and said, yep, bring him in. We'll do what we can. And that was a that became a 16 year relationship until um, the doctor very unfortunately passed away. So you had mentioned that your condition is rare, a rare form of dwarfism. What distinguishes it from other dwarfism? The physical characteristics are different. I'm more proportionate in in my physicality. So my arms are slightly longer, um, and my legs are slightly longer. My torso is. It, it, everything is kind of proportionate, um, just shrunken in, in a sense, um, at least limb-wise. So achondroplasia is the most common form of dwarfism. There are about 200 to 250 different types of dwarfism, but achondroplasia is the most common. Peter Dinklage is an individual that exhibits achondroplasia. So um, that's a lot of people associate you know, dwarfism with that look or that appearance. Um, my unique characteristics are that I'm more proportionate, um, cartilage hair hypoplasia. So my hair is finer. I actually have very like fine, thin hair, which is why I shave my head. Um, and uh, it's also, um, been said that, uh, my joints are kind of misprogrammed. They don't necessarily operate like normal individuals, um, joints. So, in, in, in what way? In the way that they bend or grow? Or uh, in the way that they developed, actually. Um, I've been very fortunate in that I don't have uh, 
pain functioning on a day to day basis. I can't do construction work and I can't be, you know, lifting 20 pounds, 20 pound boxes all day long as a, as an occupation, but, um, day to day life, playing drums, working as an actor, surfing, I don't have pain. And I'm very, very fortunate because I've had multiple reconstructive skeletal surgeries. There are an array of medical conditions and issues that usually go along with dwarfism, and surgeries are a common way to correct or manage some of these issues. The most widely known and recognizable little person in the U.S. is probably Peter Dinklage, due to his many TV and film roles, most notably on Game of Thrones. But before that mega-hit show in 2006, Dinklage gave an interview and talked about his own medical treatment. I went to Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore. Dr. Kopitz, the guy who like, started it all, the, the uh, bone fixing, the straightening of the legs that I had done when I was about five. Um, I was in casts for a very long time, had chicken pox under them. But I had my bones straightened. This guy with Dr. Kopitz was amazing. One thing to keep in mind, though, is that just because they have these medical complications doesn't mean that those with dwarfism can't live long and productive lives. For example, Billy Barty was a well-known actor in TV shows and movies from the 30s through the 70s. And he actually had the same rare condition as Christoph, cartilage hair hypoplasia. He founded the Little People of America in 1957, a national lobbying and advocacy organization. And he lived to be 76. Jerry Marin was another actor playing one of those munchkins in the original Wizard of Oz. He lived to be 98. So as you can see, their dwarfism did not impair the longevity of their lives at all. But of course, medical treatment is just one aspect of dwarfism. Another is the personal and emotional impact it can have on a person's life. I believe I first recognized that I was special when we started to go see the doctor. Um, that, that was around two. Around two, two years old. yeah. I mean, who knows what I realized when I was two? Um, I I can barely remember two months ago. Um, so I, I I'm not 100 sure, but yeah, when you go to see a doctor for your physical ability and planning of surgeries down the road. You don't know anything else, you know, that's that that's just a part of your life. You have to go through it. I mean, you can choose to not do it, but that seems like a really silly decision. Um, I guess maybe I, I realized that that was different. And then in comparing my life to my friends and other kids around me and as little people, you realize that there's there's a cutoff point, right, where you're, you are similar to kids for a while. And then six, seven, eight, nine, when the kids around you start to shoot up in height and you realize that you're staying somewhat at the same height and you're not going to get taller and your folks explain that to you. But that that is when you realize, you know, you're, you're going to be different and it's going to be permanent. For you, what was your experience when it came to other people's reaction? Other people would react to me in many different ways. Um, I have a disability that is very visual. You can't not see how I am, you know? Um, and 
kids would make fun of me. They would point me out. Adults would make fun of me and point me out and think it was funny to see someone with short limbs walking around anywhere. Um, and that was, that was really difficult for, for a while. And I didn't know how to necessarily handle it. I mean, I hid a lot. I, I remember, you know, hiding in department stores when I was hanging out with my mom and I always wanted to go ramble off and see, explore the store because my mom was looking at clothes or whatever she was doing. And, you know, you encounter somebody and you're without the protection or of your mom or your parent and people say stuff and it can definitely be hurtful and it affects you for sure, you know? And that's, that's just something that, that happens later on in life. I was alienated and I was, I was bullied through isolation. So I wasn't included, you know, in junior high and high school in the activities that I wanted to be a part of because the people that I that I was around or my my quote unquote you know acquaintances in in school wouldn't want to have me there. And so, was it mostly in social circles or also like athletic competition and other things? Well, yeah, it's mostly social circles. Um, athletics. I, I played baseball and I actually tried out for the basketball team, which I think is hilarious in junior <laughs> high. And I right? think I made maybe the second round of tryouts or something. But I knew I was, you know. I was four foot four. I'm not going to play basketball. Come on. Like, that's ridiculous. And, you know, physically, I shouldn't have been doing that at all. But I loved basketball and I loved being physical. And that's what my friends and I would do at home or at school or whatever. And, you know, I wasn't this, I wasn't so affected that I didn't have a good childhood. My childhood was amazing. And I had great friends and I had people that accepted me. But you know how I mentioned I, there are things two months ago that I can't remember? There are times when I was bullied that I won't forget it, you know? And that's 30 years ago, 40 years ago. And it's that stuff just stays with you and it, and it affects you. And I, there's this theme that I bring up on my show that little people have to grow up before everybody else. Because we have to deal with medical issues or we have to deal with social issues in a way that it's, it comes faster at us, you know, and it comes harder because people get made fun of all the time. But as soon as you start to look different and you're not assimilating into the, <laughs> the groups that you are around, there are people that stand out and that find it comforting or find it that it's the only way that they can deal with seeing you is to make fun of you or alienate you. You had mentioned that isolation was was one of the outcomes of the bullying and you just not wanting to engage and kind of put yourself up to that. In what other ways did it affect you as far as you growing up, how you either saw other people, how you thought about other relationships, whether just friendship or romantic, how did it affect those those areas of your life? It was huge. It affected those things in a, in a major way. I I probably had a lower confidence in myself, you know, and lower social confidence, and I would mask that with false sense of confidence, for lack of a better term. You know, I, I would just try to 
manhandle a situation or just make it all about me having control over the situation instead of being able to to have this flux and play because I knew that if I didn't have total control over a situation, I could get hurt or there would be this consequence of that was unintended, you know, that I didn't want to have happen to me. And so that is not good <laughs> for making good friendships and good, you know, relationships and having girlfriends down the road and, and intimate um, relationships. It's at, at what age were you when this kind of attitude was going on? It's probably junior high. I remember some girls coming up to me and saying that they were interested and like they liked me, you know, which in school, that's a, that's huge. That's, yeah. that's huge. <laughs> and, you know, they thought I was cute and wanted to talk to me and wanted to go steady, I think is what it called. It was called. Right. Um, and I shut it down. I just like, um, I just, I just shut it down, you know, cause I'm sure in, seventh grade, it's very, very, it was very, very awkward for me to have that attention. You know, I didn't want people to look at me and see this thing that needed help or this thing that was unable to handle myself and handling myself, quote unquote, was controlling the situation. <laughs> um, and, you know, looking back, I, I think uh, that was so dumb. I missed out on who knows what that could have led to? Who knows how good my relationships could be now if I would have screwed up or, you know, actually allowed a relationship to get really messy when I was in seventh grade. Um, and, you know, it, after that, there really weren't too many opportunities for me because you handle it in a way of where you want to control everything and you find out that that works in some kind of way. To protect yourself. But I, I assume that pushed most people away from you then. It pushed a lot of people away for sure. It kept me from, you know, wanting to try some other situations. So was your dwarfism a part of how you thought about what you could do with your life, about the kind of jobs you could have, about where you could live? Did, did it affect everything in that in that respect? It did. I probably, I know I wasn't thinking too far down the road, you know, career-wise and, and things like that. I would enjoy what I could enjoy in the moment. And my family always went to Florida and I was always in the water and playing in the water. Um, we went to different places in Michigan and I was always doing those types of things. I was really drawn to water and music and those can be really individualistic experiences um, you know, practicing music and, and just enjoying a beach. And so I did that a lot. And that gave me confidence in a way. When I started to play drums in high school, I just loved music so much. And I would, I would just delve into playing drums and getting focused and working on that as much as I could. And did you practice at home? I practiced at home. Yeah, for sure. And, and so were your parents always saying shut up or did they let you go at My it? My mom is the most accommodating and supportive person when it comes to artistic endeavors. I would practice my butt off and she was totally cool with it. And I mean, I probably was told twice that, you know, please not today. 
I was always practicing. It was it was great, and that was my connection. You know, I I channeled it through music, and I started rock and roll bands and punk bands and stuff, and that was so much fun for me. But that also was that's controlling my experience of how you view me or the experience of how you view me, you know, um, I can play drums and that's really, really cool. And so you should think that I'm cooler than I am, (laughs) you know? Now I'm also curious hiding behind the drum set and being able to sit if that just from a a physical aesthetic standpoint, if that also may have had a part in it. Well, I had scoliosis really badly and I remember reading about Kurt Cobain and how his back was so messed up from carrying a guitar on his back um, and how he, you know, had pain in that regard. And so I, I knew that that was probably going to be difficult for me when I realized how heavy a guitar is. Plus my hands are smaller and I have fat fingers too. So getting my hand around a, a, a guitar neck and actually pressing down on the frets and the strings, I, it sounds terrible and it's just frustrating. So I don't have, I don't have the equipment for that. So that was basically why I started to play drums. And I think it was also maybe a little bit of getting out some aggression, you know, make some loud noise. Cause there were days where I was just mad or frustrated and I would just make some noise for 15 minutes solid. That was crap, but loud and felt good to get out, you know? And I assume that you found acceptance within the the bands that you that you were a part of. I did for sure. Um, I, the stuff I listened to was punk rock stuff, but it was also uh, stuff that was funky too. And I I just gravitated to to trying to play everything I possibly could and working it out. And I loved it when I could sit behind the drum set with other people that I don't play with that I didn't play with regularly and have them say, Oh wow, man, you can play. And I'm like, yeah, I can play, man. Um, <laughs> and uh, that, that always felt really good. You know, this showing off, trying to be bigger than I was mom or than I, I maybe perceived myself, but it was also, it was also fun. It was also really cool. I didn't just do it because I wanted to show off and do that. I, I really got into drums and I, I loved it and I got decently good at it to a point where I, I, I wanted to learn more and I wanted to play as much as I can. So when I graduated, I made a pact with myself that if I turn 40 and I don't give music a shot, will I be disappointed with myself? And that answer was yes. And so I woke up at 8am every morning, practiced on the practice pad, um, played in some really I'll just say novice blues bands and rock bands around town. And then um, I connected with some randomly with a a guy that I had gone to high school with and he was connected in the, in the Detroit rock scene and had some songs and we ended up starting a band and yeah, nobody was coming up to me and saying, you know, like you're a midget on the drums. What the heck, you know, like they were all, introducing themselves to me and saying hello and and having conversations with me. And that was awesome. It felt so good. So, so you were able to play drums professionally and that, have that be your job? No. <laughs> <laughs> not, not quite there yet. I played drums professionally and I didn't make any money. 
I had two, I had two video (laughs) jobs and was living at my, in my mom's basement. Um, but we had a van, we had pressings, we had merchandise, we had promotional materials and all that stuff. But it all just kind of paid for itself. It paid for itself. And, and I mean, that's honestly the smartest way to do that because then, you know, the guitar player doesn't have $500 invested into something else. And, you know, the singer doesn't have $2,000 invested into something else. And then, yeah, it's, it's smarter for sure. Christoph found acceptance. He found something he was good at, drumming. And he found what, really what we're all looking for, a place to belong and where we are appreciated. This band provided that for him in a big way. And Christoph brought up the fact that no one called him the M word. Now, according to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, the first use of the term midget was in 1816. And through the mid to late 1800s, the term became more widely used, particularly from P.T. Barnum and his various circus acts. For most of the 20th century, it was also an acceptable term for those who were shorter than average. Christoph and I are about the same age, and it was a commonly used term when we were growing up. But the term started to take on new meaning and be seen as more of a pejorative term by the 1990s. And in 2015, Little People of America issued a statement to abolish the M word, with over 90% of their members stating that the word should never be used in reference to a person with dwarfism. But regardless of the terminology, Christoph's acceptance of himself and his dwarfism was not an easy road. I rejected going to Little People of America. I didn't want to associate with little people. It, you know, I I didn't want to talk about any of this stuff. Even into my 30s, you know, it, this wasn't something that I was comfortable just airing out. Um, I knew it hurt when nobody said, oh, there is a little person. I'm being PC, and I'm, but I'm calling him out. No, it was always, look at that midget. Look at that. Did you see the midget over there? And... I didn't know the history of it. I just knew that they were talking about me and it didn't feel good. So that's where my association is with it. But I, I, you know, I didn't want to, I didn't want to see myself. I didn't want to meet myself there. And so I just didn't talk about it. I didn't go see other little people. I didn't hang out with little people. I wasn't interested. And yes, little person is the is the PC term. Dwarf is also PC, I guess, you know, I I don't, they're kind of interchangeable in my mind. But when I talk to people on my show, what they like is to just be called their name. Um, You know, it's, it's kind of a thing that there's been a couple stories that I've had on my show and that they it, it comes up, you know, somebody will ask, well, you know, I, I like you or you're, you're a, I'm a fan of yours. It's like, how do I describe you? And they're like, my name's Lauren. Just call me Lauren. Or my name is Christoph or my name is Joseph. Just call me. That's who I am. You know, uh, yeah, I have short limbs. That doesn't define who I am. It's a part of me, but I'm all these other things to all these other people. And it sounds like that as much as your dwarfism, certainly from a medical standpoint, was something to to monitor and maintain through throughout your years. Uh, like you said, you didn't want it to be a defining 
attribute to you. There was certainly much more to you, whether it was a drummer or other career choices that, that you wanted to get into. Yeah, for sure. It's I really wanted to be a drummer and I was a drummer and I feel accomplished as a drummer, which is awesome. And that's a part of what I've done. And I've done a lot of other things too. And I'm also a little person, you know, it's, it's all in there. Yeah. A lot of people say what they see and that's fine to an extent. And I think that's why so many little people are forgiving in that regard. You know, a lot of my friends, if somebody comes up to them and they say, Oh, you're a midget, right? You know, if if you allow... <laughs> like, I love how they're asking you. Like, maybe you don't know. Well, actually, it's funny because <laughs> I had somebody... Uh, this was hilarious. A friend of a friend, I was talking with him on the phone and we were talking about surfing and he was very interested in learning about um, my condition because he saw me surfing and he he thought that was impressive and that was cool. And he'd been surfing his whole life. And so he wanted to talk to me. He's definitely old school, a little bit closed off in the, in, you know, the open-mindedness about things, but was interesting. He was interested. He wanted to talk to me and, you know, I was talking with him and he, I said, you know, I have a dwarfism. I'm, I'm a dwarf. And he's like, no, Christoph, you're not a dwarf. And I'm like, well, Yes, I am. Actually, it's, you know, it's not all I am, but I, I I have a dwarfism. Like that's, I don't know what he's like, don't say that about yourself. You're not a dwarf. <laughs> I'm like, like, I don't know how to, I don't know how to say the next thing to you. It's really weird, you know? It, it, in his mind, was he thinking that was like, you were cutting yourself down. Absolutely. And so don't, so don't say that about yourself. Yeah, I think, and, and you know what, like, that's why the terminology is the terminology and I get it. It's not confusing. The the goal isn't to nail the terminology across the board, right? What's the use in that? You know, is it orange or is it, you know, sunset orange or is it sunrise (laughs) orange? It's like, who cares? You know, it's a sunset and it's beautiful and you're looking at it. You know, that's, that's the thing is please look at us with your eyes into our eyes and see our personality and our contribution and our different view of society. Holy cow. Like that is incredible that there are benefits to being a little person. There are a lot of downfalls, but instead of just seeing that this is hilarious or this is a, a, um, a hindered existence, yeah, your world isn't made for us. You know what I mean? <laughs> I would never put something on a grocery shelf that high, you jerks. But <laughs> you know, it's... although although I can say, and and certainly I'm I'm not trying to compare myself, but being six three also has some disadvantages. I mean, I have a permanent knots on the top of my head because yeah. at least you know so many times I hit my own head. Yeah, and and so being tall you know, the, the adverse of that can also come with its downside. 100%. I, I, and, and I've had so many conversations with people of your height and even taller who are, you know, they commiserate. They say, they're like, we see eye to eye. And like, yeah, we do. People make fun of you all the time. How's the weather up there? How is, you know, right. can you reach this for me? Or you're so tall. I can't believe it. it's like, I am so sick of you saying this to me just because I'm a tall person, you know, that's, and I don't know if you've felt this as a tall person, but you want the existence to be 
normalized. You don't want it to be such a point of interest is fine, but it's it's a point of like judgment. And I don't understand like why it has to has to be that way. And it's not okay to just look at that and say like, okay, this is the container that you belong in. So we're gonna we're gonna deal with you however best we can deal with you in our limited ways of dealing with things. For most people, myself included, the perception and understanding of little people is in large part shaped by what we see coming out of Hollywood. For many, it is the most visible profession for a little person to have. And eventually, despite his best efforts to find other work, Christoph found himself being pulled into the acting world. That was all kind of accidental. I left the rock band that I toured with um, and decided to move to Los Angeles with the intent of playing music and touring again with other rock bands and making a living as a drummer. And I did a little bit of that, which was awesome, but I started to get hired for my size. And after trying to push everybody away about my size and push the feelings down about who I am and why I am this way, I was starting to get paid for it. (laughs) And What was the first time that you were hired for your size? The first job was a pilot for a show and there were maybe 11 little people on this pilot. And so I just met all of these incredible people. And that was the first time where I really just felt okay around little people. I didn't feel great, that's for sure. I was happy to go home and not have another little person there. Was it anxiety? Was it in your face, like, oh, I'm one of these people too? and Or, or like, what was going on? It, I mean, it was just so many years of not wanting to associate and thinking that I didn't belong in this group. Um, I wasn't a part of them. I didn't look like them. I didn't feel like them. I couldn't joke around like they did. I didn't have the history of camaraderie like they did. But damn, I had so much fun with them. They were great. They were hilarious. They were kind. They were everything. It was it was really cool. And that was, you know, the opening to to my eyes in in that world and accept and the start I think to accepting me um accepting myself. Was it that you saw that being short didn't hinder you or you just saw short as oh look it can be normal too? What what was the connection there? I think it was the way that they dealt with themselves and with each other. I think they just had this so much more of a comfortable interaction and camaraderie with one another than I ever had or ever expected. I never, I mean, honestly, I never thought about it. I never even thought about being friends with little people. I am a little person. <laughs> what the heck, you know? Um, and... It, it really opened my eyes and, you know, I, I mentioned my parents being headstrong and, you know, that's in me as well. So it didn't just happen overnight. It took me a long time to get to the place where I was comfortable and I wasn't outwardly a jerk to anybody. You know, when somebody needed help on, on the set, if they had some mobility issues, I was always sensitive to that and I would always stick around and, and want to help somebody out. But being friends, no, that wasn't, I wasn't there yet at that point. 
So did you try to go away from it since you said you, you weren't quite comfortable yet? Yeah, I still wasn't totally comfortable with it yet. And I, I was still going for music stuff. Um, I ended up getting booked on the Ellen DeGeneres show to play drums with a prodigy Japanese guitarist who was nine years old, which was super awesome and still a highlight in my musical career. And then two or three weeks after that, I got hired by Universal Pictures to go to Santa Fe, New Mexico for the summer to work on a film. And I almost didn't take the job because it wasn't music. And I called up a musician friend of mine and I said, should I do this? And he's like, are you stupid? It's a gig. He's like, go make money and go stay in Santa Fe and come back and play drums when you get back. Like, you got to live. I didn't have anything else going on. My bank account was just getting drained because I didn't have, you know, a, a safety net gig. So what was holding you back? I'm so curious. I mean, you're right. It's a, a job's a job. Who cares what it is? So what was holding you back? I wanted to play drums. I want. I came to LA to play drums, not to be an actor. And it's it, there's a funny. I feel like in Detroit, there's a funny, you know, dichotomy. It's 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 not about the show so much as it's a, it's about your ability musically, you know? It's like, what is your raw core talent musically? And, and Hollywood is very much about flair as opposed to raw core talent. That is there too, trust me. There's some amazing players, tons of amazing players, but Hollywood also looks for that flair. And so I couldn't really see the difference between the two. And yeah, I almost turned this down. And that honestly, I, I did the job in, in Santa Fe. It was for a movie called Paul. And I was the stand-in for a CGI alien character the entire summer. Best summer of my life. I had so much fun and made so many great friends and made good money. And so were you like wearing the outfit and then they would go in after and then put the actual character on top of your filming? So I didn't even wear the outfit. I just wore street clothes and I would do rehearsals. I was basically there for camera rehearsals. And so they would rehearse the scene with me and then have me step out and then they would shoot the scene because they, you know, had a moment when I was in there so they could see where I would be and learn how I would react. But then they also had four or five Paul puppets. And the alien character is half the, the weight of me. So it's just this skinny rail of an of a individual. And I have man shoulders and man hips. And so, you know, when they wanted me to sit on like a sliver of a couch, I couldn't fit in there, but they could put the puppet where they wanted it. Um, and there was a lot of post-production and, you know, CGI painting and stuff like that. So I wasn't in the scenes when they were shooting most of the time. There were a few times when I wore the, the blue suit and, you know, had to interact with my environment. But for the most part, I was just reference. Interesting. So had you had any type of, of acting or on stage or anything like that before this? Not at all. I did not. In fact, I remember I had $7 in my bank account when I got this job. I borrowed some money from my dad so that I could pay for my house rental until I like got set up with the, the film because they gave me a stipend for, for housing. But I was so green that I rode to set with one of the well-known actors, didn't know who he was at all, 
asked him who I asked him, so you work on this movie? Like, what do you do? He's like, oh yeah, I work on it. He's one of the main actors on the darn film. And then, um, I also, (laughs) I think I still have this photo, but the first moment on set, I'm a stand in. Okay. I am not like up there in the ranks. I'm a stand in. I whip out a digital camera and I take a photo of the entire production crew on set. <laughs> I still have this photo. And I, the the job was with Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. They're oh, cool. the leads in the film. And they came up to me the first day and shook my hand and said, oh, thank you so much for coming and spending the summer with us. Like this, we're so happy to have you. And my mind was blown. I could not believe they were so kind they were so awesome. Kristen Wiig was on the show. Joe Latrulio was on the show. Jason Bateman. Yeah, it was incredible. Like, what a summer. So good. So I assume that based upon this great summer and great experience, then that gave you the idea, oh, well, maybe I can do this and drum. So this is great. So I'll, I'll backtrack just a little bit if this is okay. Um, I was in touch with an agent a month after moving to Los Angeles. She signed me the day she saw me because they didn't have a little person to represent. And so I got signed to this boutique agency. They were the ones that got me the job on the pilot. Um, And then I was contacted directly to do this job. And they were so mad that I took a stand-in job without going through them that they fired me. Is, Is it that you didn't pay them commission? Was that the reason why? Yes. Well, I was informed that agents don't take money from stand-in jobs. And I was also contacted directly for the job. And so they they said that they were dropping me because I took myself out of their pool of uh, potential work for the summer. Interesting. Hmm. And so I was just like, well, an agent didn't work out. I'm just going to go back and play more music. And, and it was fine because if the agency was I don't want to talk poorly, but it wasn't, I don't believe it was a good fit. Well, the sheer fact that they dropped you for that reason is indication enough that, yeah, you just didn't mesh with them and they weren't the right ones for you. But for any actor who gets dropped by their agent, I mean, that's that's a devastating thing. So it's it's so interesting how coolly you're like, all right, well, I'll just go back to drums. <laughs> I just wanted to go play music. I was like, oh, I have some money. I'm going to just go play music again. And I, I did have the foresight to about halfway through the movie, I'm thinking, oh, this is an opportunity for me to join the SAG union if, you know, it works out. And so I asked production and they were so kind and they gave me a line and they taft hartley me and stuff. And it was so cool. And I came back to LA and I did get the SAG membership. And then I didn't work another SAG show for like three years. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. There, there wasn't really much, much happening in that regard. So was it that you just weren't getting opportunities or auditions or were you just not pursuing it that much? Yeah, because I didn't have an agent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's probably a, a big reason. That's the thing, yeah. you know. Um, I did end up getting an agent and they did start to submit me for things and I did work a couple jobs and I was doing well. I mean, there were some decent jobs that I worked, um, but I still had music on the brain and I, I wasn't they were costume jobs and they were fun. They were cool to do. I did this alien job where I had to have my hand above my head operating the face of the alien. And I worked with another six foot 
tall guy and you know we were both like he was the the mom alien and i was the child alien and it was this this <laughs> thing for lunchables that freaked out this um these kids and i mean that stuff was really cool and i felt useful and i felt like oh nobody can do this job i i have to be the one to do this job this is cool i'm physical i can like handle this and I really enjoyed it, but I, I, there was a part of me that still missed music, and so I, I wanted to go back and play more music. What I love is that throughout all of these other different opportunities, you know, your interest in surfing, but also these random acting gigs and on-camera stuff that came your way, music, drums was still your your passion, and you weren't really being deterred from that, it looks like. Yeah, I was. In fact, I moved back to Michigan to go to music school. <laughs> And, um, yeah, to get like a master's or something, or just for more training, I I went to get a bachelor's because I had my other bachelor's was in telecommunications and film. And I wasn't, I was doing a lot of performance stuff, you know, on camera and movies and TV and stuff, and then playing drums. So I was, I, I saw all my friends who were playing music and I, you know, a lot of them went to this school in Michigan and that's what I wanted to do. And that is actually where we will pick up with part two. Christoph will talk about going back to school, but instead finding a great and powerful opportunity that becomes a life-changing experience for him. Thank you so much for joining me and Christoph today for part one. I'd also like to give a special shout out and thank you to Drew Gretsch, who left a review on Apple Podcasts and said, This podcast is such a cool look behind the curtains of an actor's life. Highly recommend. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much, Drew. And if you know someone who could benefit from conversations like these, I would greatly appreciate you sharing and recommending this podcast as well. Well, I'm your host, Patrick Oliver Jones, editor and executive producer of the podcast. Dylan Adams is the booking producer. Music has been provided by Bortex and Blue Dot Sessions. This podcast is a member of the Helium Radio Network and Broadway Makers Alliance. Part two with Christoph will also include the final five questions. So you don't want to miss our continuing conversation next time as we talk more about why I'll never make it. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.